Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And it's your last chance to get more fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this limited-time bundle ends June 30th. Save now at cedarpoint.com. I'm Katie Fang, live from Telemundo Studios in Miami, Florida. And here's the week that was. President Biden and former President Trump coming off huge wins in Michigan. More than 100,000 voters casting their ballots for uncommitted. If he doesn't get it together and change what he's doing, we will not vote for him in November. Hunter Biden is testifying behind closed doors to the House Oversight Committee. I'm telling you that this is a waste of time and we need to get back to this people's work. I am tired. The Republicans are going to lose the House and y'all run this back for them when they do. Mitch McConnell is stepping down as leader of the Republican Party in the Senate. It's time for the next generation of leadership. More than 100 people were killed during a violent scene at a food distribution effort. A Palestinian eyewitness tells NBC News Israeli forces opened fire at the crowd before the trucks arrived. Israel telling a different story, saying many were killed in a stampede near the trucks. The health ministry now puts the Gaza death toll from the war at over 30,000. President Biden and former President Trump visiting the southern border. This is a Biden invasion over the past three years. So instead of playing politics with the issue, why don't we just get together and get it done? You heard it from her. Congresswoman Jasmine Crockett saying, quote, I'm telling you that this is a waste of time and we need to get back to the people's work. The Republicans are going to lose the House and y'all run this back for them when they do. We'll have Congresswoman Crockett later on. She never minces words. And this week, she has a lot to say about the GOP chaos caucus. She'll bring more of that trademark fire in the show as she shares what went down behind closed doors in the farce that is the Hunter Biden investigation. It was a dark and rainy day in Atlanta yesterday as closing arguments were made in an evidentiary hearing to determine if Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis should be disqualified from continuing to prosecute Donald Trump's RICO case. The state calling the defense's efforts to disqualify Willis a desperate attempt to remove a prosecutor from a case for absolutely no reason other than harassment and embarrassment. And Trump lawyer Steve Sadow arguing that once you have the appearance of impropriety, that's enough to disqualify. But the question of whether the defense met their burden of proof still remains. Judge McAfee saying he'd rule in the next two weeks, and if the motion is granted, the racketeering case against Donald Trump could be entirely upended. Joining me now, Anthony Michael Christ, assistant professor of law at Georgia State University. Anthony, you and I have been following this case intently for several months. You were also present yesterday, as was I, when we were listening to these closing arguments straight out of the gate. I want to know your prediction on how Judge McAfee is going to rule. I think it's very unlikely he'll disqualify the Fulton County District Attorney's Office from the case, namely because the burden 
of production in terms of evidence rests with the defense here. And so um, th there's one really important piece of unrebutted evidence, which is that Fonnie Willis and Nathan Way's relationship ended before the indictments were handed down by the Fulton County Grand Jury and before charging decisions and charging recommendations were made to that Fulton County Grand Jury. And I think that's really the key point here um, in terms of the timing. And I think that the standard is, is wrong in terms of what the defendants are arguing. I think Georgia law is very clear. An actual concrete conflict of interest must exist in order to disqualify a district attorney's office from a case. So, Anthony, let's let's stay on this, though, because there was a lot of questions, as you heard, peppered to the defense by the judge in this case as to the burden of proof. I heard Judge McAfee saying, hey, preponderance of the evidence is the standard. But to Steve Sadow, he said suggestions of wrongdoing certainly don't meet that burden. Do you agree with how Judge McAfee was asking the defense whether or not they understood what their burden was? Yeah, it, it did seem as if there was a little confusion there. I, I think what's the, at really at bottom at issue here is, you know, you can't have a scenario where a defense attorney brings in, um, you know, these allegations, salacious or otherwise, that um, are all hat and no cattle, and then muddy up the process just sufficiently enough to say, well, now there's an appearance of impropriety in the eye of a reasonable observer in the in the public. And, and so I think that's really a, a problematic dynamic that you would interject into the criminal justice system. Um, of course, we want prosecutors to, fit, you know, to, to discharge their duties faithfully um, and, and to not make or to ensure rather that defendants are not taken advantage of or the, that the process is not abused in any sort of way. But part, you know, I think prosecutors are partisans, right? Necessarily so. And so we have to really figure out what that balance is. We also have to make sure that when allegations are brought, they are substantiated. And really, in my view, at least, the defense has not produced the evidence to suggest that anything untoward happened in uh, to the extent that Fonnie Willis profited from this prosecution, that, that there's just really nothing there in that in that sense. You know, Anthony, we've been stuck on this idea of actual conflict of interest versus appearance of impropriety. The defense, I thought, trying to play cute a little bit yesterday, too clever by half, trying to tell Judge McAfee that it should be appearance of impropriety. However, you're the law professor. Educate our viewers. Is it actual conflict of interest or is it appearance of impropriety? I think it's actual conflict. The, the appearance of impropriety standard is one that we use for judges, and, and judges are different than prosecutors. Judges are, are adjudicators. They are to be impartial and fair, um, and that's essential to the, the criminal justice system working well. Um, but prosecutors are adversarial. They're not team defendant, and so different standards have to apply. Um, the history of the, the statute for disqualification in Georgia goes back to 1860. In 1860, the, the statute that we still pretty much have today in some way, shape, mm -hmm. or form, um, is talking about a common law standard for disqualification from an interest, right, a direct pecuniary interest, money lining the pockets of the prosecutor, or a relationship. For example, the, the prosecutor is, is close with a, with a witness, used to de, uh, represent a defendant, um, knows the victim, something of that nature that would call into question their ability to bring the case fairly. And that's, that's, a, that's a high standard to prove. It's an old standard. And so I think what the defense are trying to do here is import a new standard that is not consistent with, with Georgia case law, nor the, the common law origins and statutory history behind the disqualification statute that is still on the books today. 
Always so smart and so informative. I'm out of time, Anthony, but I invite the viewers to go and look at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You wrote an exceptional piece tracking the history of that statute and really taking a deep dive in terms of what's going on in the disqualification. I appreciate you being here, Anthony and Michael Christ. Thank you so much. Thank you. Meanwhile, we're going to go back to Florida, where a Trump-appointed federal judge, Aileen Cannon, heard arguments yesterday in Trump's classified documents case. Now, while there's technically still a May trial date, for now, Trump attorney Todd Blanche whined that it would be unfair to the former president to put him on trial before the November election, saying, quote, we very much continue to believe that a trial that takes place before the election is a mistake and should not happen. Special counsel Jack Smith's team urging Judge Cannon to agree to at least a July trial start but Cannon already expressing doubts. And while she has yet to make an official ruling, her infamously sympathetic ear to Donald Trump is leading some to believe that he just might get his way. Joining me now for more is Paul Butler, MSNBC legal analyst and professor of law at Georgetown Law School. You know, Paul, let, let's talk about what happened yesterday. There was zero ruling from the judge from the bench. There's still a May trial date, except all conventional wisdom suggests we're not going to trial in May. I want you to talk about Paul, the fact that the Supreme Court just took up that 1-6 federal election interference case appeal on presidential immunity and whether or not you thought that weighed on Judge Cannon at all in terms of her considerations of a new trial date. So it didn't come up yesterday. Donald Trump thinks he should be immune from prosecution over classified documents, just like he should be immune for trying to overturn the election. The issue the Supreme Court is deciding in the D.C. case is whether a former president has immunity for acts he committed when he was president. In the classified documents case, Trump is making a different argument. He's charged for conduct after he left the White House. So he's saying that he should be not to be prosecuted. He's asked, he could actually ask the Supreme Court to take up this issue as a separate case which hmm. would cause even hmm. more delay. Yeah, you know, Paul, something that stood out to me also was the fact that Judge Cannon um, brought up the 60-day rule herself, right? Judge Cannon asking whether or not the 60-day rule applied. Now, this is a judge. This is a impartial jurist who's supposed to be just calling balls and strikes down the middle. Why would Judge Cannon be asking about the asking the DOJ specifically about the 60-day rule? Uh, that's a really good question, Katie. The 60-day rule isn't even part of the federal criminal code. It's a DOJ policy about when prosecutors are investigating a politician. Uh, they're not supposed to take overt acts like executing a, short, uh, a search warrant shortly before an election. But this policy doesn't apply to ongoing prosecutions. So, for example, if Trump is already on trial in Florida or D.C., the judge would not stop the trial just because it's 60 days before the election. Paul, let's also talk about the fact that Donald Trump keeps pushing the limits and the boundaries of getting information that should be protected, sealed, and otherwise not available. I'm not even talking about the classified top secret documents themselves in the discovery process. I'm talking about the motions he's filed to compel the turning over by the government of the names of witnesses and other people that participated in the investigatory process. All right. He wants to make the names of the witnesses public, Katie. There's no good reason for him to do that. And Jack Smith has legitimate concerns that those witnesses will be subject to threats and intimidation. That's what's happened to witnesses, judges, 
and prosecutors in Trump's other cases. But, you know, I think the real takeaway from yesterday is just how Trump's defense team thinks that Judge Maureen Cannon is going to cooperate with their delay tactics. They claim that the trial needs to happen after the election. Otherwise, it's political persecution and election interference. But, Katie, then they said they were cool with having the trial before the election as long as it's in August. They didn't mean that. The defense is playing this chess game to try to delay everything. If Judge Cannon sets her trial for August, that boxes out Judge Chunkin from setting her trial in September. And then as we get closer to the August trial date, Judge Cannon is likely to be sympathetic to more and more delay, pushing both federal trials after the election, which, as you know, Katie, could mean that they will never happen. Which then means, Paul, we got to focus on the Manhattan DA's case that goes to trial on March 25th. And we got to see what happens in Fulton County with Fonnie Willis. Paul Butler, as always, my friend, it's good to see you. And thanks for getting us started. I appreciate it. And still to come on the Katie Fang Show, Decision 2024, you've got multiple caucuses set to kick off today in the states of Idaho and Missouri. And there's a look ahead to this week's Make or Break Super Tuesday that could determine the future of Nikki Haley's languishing bid for the Oval Office. That's up next. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. This weekend, Republicans are gathering in four states to either help cement Donald Trump's lead or help Nikki Haley finally win at least one time in the race for the Republican presidential nomination. Today, caucuses are being held in Idaho and Missouri with a party convention in Michigan. Then on Sunday, Washington, D.C. will hold its caucus. But the biggest competition comes in just three days on Super Tuesday, when 16 states and one territory are holding a caucus or primary. 865 delegates are up for grabs, so it's do or die time if Nikki Haley hopes to stay in the race past next week. NBC's Kristen Welker asked her this week if Super Tuesday could be her last stand. We're looking at it as we're hoping for a good competitive showing. That's always been the case in every step is can we continue to stay competitive? When 70 percent of Americans say they don't want Donald Trump or Joe Biden, you keep going to make sure people have a choice. Doesn't sound like a no to me. Joining me now is David Jolly, MSNBC political analyst and former Republican congressman from Florida, and Olivia Juliana, a political strategist and one of my favorite, favorite young people. David and Olivia, thank you for joining me this morning. I'd like to start with you, David. Nikki Haley seems to be lowering expectations ahead of Super Tuesday, but she's been pretty strong about trying to stay in until the bitter end. I mean, what's it going to be, David? I mean, is she going to actually say peace out after Tuesday night? 
She should, but she should have said it after New Hampshire and certainly after South Carolina, which leads you to ask, why is she really staying in? Look, vanity is powerful in politics, and certainly some of this is vanity. But let's take her at her word that she thinks that voters who are asking for a choice deserve to have one on the ballot. If so, then good for her, because statistically, that's exactly right. There's a movement even among Republicans who don't want Donald Trump. The question, though, is if she is mobilizing that constituency because it's so important that they have another choice. What does she do for them when the Republican primary is over? Because what she's kind of indicated is she's going to fold in behind Donald Trump and presumably ask those voters to fold in behind Donald Trump. So then what is this exercise all about? Unless she actually says, I'm not sure Donald Trump is the right person against Joe Biden, but she has equivocated so much on that and actually suggested in her own words that Biden somehow is more dangerous than Donald Trump that I think the partisan politics are in play here. But she's mobilized this constituency. The question is, where do they go when Nikki Haley drops out? And wouldn't it be such a shocker if she actually said, vote for Joe Biden? No, it's not going to happen, but, you know, we could say that. Olivia, this week, President Biden overwhelmingly won the Michigan presidential primary. But over 100,000 voters cast their ballot for, quote, uncommitted because of his handling of the war in Gaza. This group notably includes Arab Americans and young people that are now looking to expand this movement to other states as well. Is Biden fumbling the way that he's approaching this particular issue? I think that the president uh, has taken a stance that I think a lot of people are very surprised about in the terms of this is the first time in a very long time that we've had a president so openly, strongly, and vocally say that he believes that there should be a two-state peaceful solution. Uh, and I think that the biggest issue that we're seeing amongst young people is a lot of people don't really know what the president's stance on the issue is. I've been knocking doors in Houston. I've been on college campuses in Houston talking to folks. And that's a question that a lot of times they ask me. And I say, okay, do you support a peaceful two-state solution? Do you support a bilateral ceasefire? If the answer is yes, then you have the stance that the president has. Uh, and I think that what we saw in Michigan is that there are a lot of people who were making their voice heard and they were participating in our democracy in a way that we've designed the system for them to participate. And I think that uh, when I look at the mission, the Michigan results, I see two things. I see, number one, if you look at the numbers compared to 2012, we see a stark increase in the number of Michigan Democratic primary voters, number one. Um, but we also see a large, large number of those voters voted overwhelmingly for Joe Biden. And so I think this is an issue that is going to matter to a lot of voters in states, particularly Michigan. But I think that the numbers show overwhelmingly that the American people are standing with the president in this issue. Um, and those who did vote uncommitted are either going to not vote for Joe Biden in November um, or, per or maybe vote for a third party candidate. But I don't see anyone in that group voting for Donald Trump. Yeah. And, you know, David, I just spoke to Paul Butler in the segment before this one about the fact that we're probably not going to see the documents case, the classified documents case, go to trial before November. You and I have spoken before about the idea that voters should have the most accurate idea of the lay of the land before they go into those ballot booths, right, Those and to vote. But do you really think that MAGA voters care whether or not Donald Trump is convicted or not? 
No, MAGA voters don't. And I don't know if persuadable voters do, right? This race will come down to six to eight percent of voters who truly are persuadable. The rest are not. They'll, they'll vote in uh, relatively partisan behavior, whether they feel the partisanship or not. That's just the, the performance pattern. So do those six or eight percent move because of Donald Trump's criminality or his autocratic leanings? It doesn't really appear to. There is certainly a threat among those persuadables of there can be too much Trump, too much chaos. The arguments that Nikki Haley are making. But as we see poll after poll, including a, a really major poll out today, it does not appear that Donald Trump's criminality really impacts this race. It's kind of amazing to see that. The one wild card I would suggest is what if there is a Jack Smith January 6th conviction, say in October, let's say it all works out, we get a conviction or it's such a pregnant question. We haven't seen the dynamic of a conviction on those persuadable voters. But thus far, Joe Biden needs to focus on the economy and liberty and reproductive rights and issues that are mattering and showing up in polls, because it is not remarkably, sadly, Donald Trump's criminality. And Olivia, to David's point, this week, Alabama state lawmakers passing legislation to protect IVF after backlash from that state Supreme Court ruling. Meanwhile, Vice President Kamala Harris going on a reproductive rights tour across the country. How important of an issue do you see IVF access being for voters in November? Uh, I think it's an incredibly important issue, not necessarily because of the specifics of IVF access itself, but rather the message that it is sending, which is uh, that this was never about just Roe v. Wade. It was never about this being a state's rights issue. This was always about controlling women's bodies and about passing strict bans on abortion. Um, and as an abortion rights activist myself, who's been on the ground in many of these states, I can tell you, uh, we've known for years that this was never about Roe. Uh, the IVF is just next on their list of attacks after this, it's going to be birth control access. It's going to be abortion medication access. The Supreme Court is slated to hear two more abortion access cases this summer regarding EMTALA, which has to do with emergency medical care uh, and emergency abortion care and medication abortion access. Uh, and these are going to be incredibly important to voters when they go to the polls in November. It's going to be important not just to highly engaged voters, but to young voters as well. Abortion is, num uh, is one of the main issues issues that young people vote on. When I've talked to people on campuses who are who are casually engaged in politics, they tell me that that is the most important issue to them, and it's why they're voting for Democrats. Um, and there are a lot of pundits who will say things like, well, uh, it's not abortion that's going to be the main issue. It's going to be uh, the economy, or it's going to be foreign policy, or it's going to be any other number of other issues. Uh, and to them, I say, a lot of you are the same pundits who said that it would not be a motivating issue going into the 2022 cycle in what should have been a red wave ended up being an R plus two year where Republicans barely took the House. And the chaos that they have had in two cents um, has really shown the people where, where we need to stand on this issue. David Jolly, Olivia Juliana, thank you both so much for your insight and analysis. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And coming up next, averting disaster. Lawmakers on Capitol Hill have staved off yet another government shutdown for now. But they're still wasting Americans' time and money tilting at windmills. Congresswoman Jasmine Crockett joins me next on the GOP dysfunction and the chaos that's keeping our government from being securely funded. But first, airdropping aid inside the Biden administration's plan to airdrop food aid into Gaza as the threat of famine grows by the day. Don't go anywhere.
We're uh, trying to uh, work out a deal between Israel and Hamas. Uh, the hostages being returned uh, and uh, an immediate ceasefire in Gaza for at least the next six weeks and, and to allow the surge of aid uh, to the entire Gaza Strip, not just the south, but the entire Gaza Strip. We're following breaking news out of Gaza this afternoon. The United States Air Force making its first airdrop of humanitarian aid in a combined effort with the Royal Jordanian Air Force, delivering 38,000 meals into the war-torn area. This comes just days after more than 100 people were killed and more than 760 were injured when Israeli forces allegedly opened fire on a crowd of Palestinians waiting to get food from aid trucks in Gaza City. The United Nations saying one in four people in Gaza is facing catastrophic levels of food insecurity and famine is, quote, almost inevitable. According to an Egyptian government source, two high-level delegations from Israel and Hamas are expected to arrive in Cairo tomorrow to discuss a possible truce between Israel and Hamas and the prospect of Israel allowing 500 trucks carrying humanitarian aid and fuel to enter Gaza daily. And turning now to the narrowly averted crisis for the American government, President Biden signing yet again a short-term funding bill yesterday, averting a partial government shutdown this weekend. This is the fourth stopgap measure, the fourth, signed this year as the chaos in the GOP-led House is keeping lawmakers from getting one of their most important jobs done, funding our government. Joining me now is Texas Congresswoman Jasmine Crockett. She's a member of the House Oversight and Accountability Committee. Congresswoman, okay, we're fourth time we have to negotiate a funding deal. I mean, why is this going on? Because we're just kicking the can down the road. And I really want viewers and Americans to understand that this is all because of the Republicans. <laughs> you said why, and then you answered your question. You're right. It's because of the Republicans. Um, first of all, it's great to see you, my friend, especially at this later hour. Um, but no, it is really unfortunate that we are dealing with um, so many serious issues, right? Like your monologue, when you open up, you talked about the aid to Gaza. We have some serious things that the world is relying upon us to try to intercede into or in, or to actually solve on behalf of them. And the Republican-run House can't even do the very basics of our job, which is to make sure that we can keep our own lights on. It is problematic, especially since it's not a matter of whether or not we actually have members and whether or not members are showing up to work. It's a matter of, are we getting any work done? And the answer is unequivocally no. We are not getting any work done. The only thing that they have on their agenda is to play more and more games and to do whatever Russian um, propaganda peddling they can do or whatever Trump um, agenda items uh, is, is what they're pretty much handling right now. Nothing as it relates to the agenda of the American people. And at the top of that, Trump agenda is number one, which is baseless impeachment inquiries. You were there for the Hunter Biden deposition occurring behind closed doors, even though Hunter Biden always offered to do it publicly. Tell us about what happened. 
Yeah, it actually was a nothing burger. Uh, I knew it would be. I mean, what did you think was going to happen? Did you think Hunter Biden was going to walk in and say, hey, yeah, my dad is corrupt and I'm corrupt. And yes, lock us all up. I mean, that was never going to happen in a million years uh, in the first place. But I will tell you that I was extremely impressed with the amount of um, composure that Hunter had. I mean, we're talking about someone who is continually under attack um, from the right for no other reason than the fact that he is the sitting president's son and they feel as if he is a good target because he has a history of drug abuse. And one of the things that he mentioned while we were in this closed door deposition was about the fact that, you know what, everyone sitting in this room probably has had someone who has been impacted by drug abuse. And I thought that that was a really salient point that he was making, not only because it was true, but because it brought the humanity of this situation um, uh, uh, into focus, right? The idea is that they are attacking someone and chances are someone that they know and or love has struggled in a similar way. And I'm sure that they would take exception if for some reason one of their friends or family members was attacked in this way. I do have to ask you about your home state of Texas, the wildfires that are there, more than a million acres that have been impacted. At least two people have died. How are things going to happen in terms of primary voting coming up on Tuesday with everything that is going on in terms of those raging wildfires in your home state? Yeah, I have no idea of exactly um, what they're going to do as far as their elections specifically in that part of the state. But I do want to say, number one, that my heart goes out to every single person that is being directly or indirectly impacted by this. Number two, um, as someone who serves on the Agriculture Committee, we have been talking about the shortage of water and the level of dryness um, that exists in this particular region for a while. And I really want Republicans to get serious about representing those that typically elect them in rural America. We have to do something on climate change. I know they hate the phraseology. I know that we've not gotten through the farm bill, but we are talking about our farmers and our ranchers that are being impacted, not to mention the environmental impact that this is going to have on um, our community. It is important that we as Americans, not as Democrats, Republicans, or independents, but as Americans get serious about climate change and start to lead this world in the way that we can. Obviously, the Biden-Harris administration has done and an immense amount of work in this area. But the reality is that as you opened up, this has been a do nothing Congress. And if we are going to do something, not only for those in uh, Texas, but those in this country and those in this world, we've got to be serious about climate change. And this is a great opportunity to start to get serious about it. Congresswoman Jasmine Crockett, my friend, it's good to see you. Thanks for being here as always. Absolutely. And coming up, the state of our union, looking ahead to President Biden's address before a joint session of Congress on Thursday. Presidential historian Michael Beschloss joins me next on if the president's speech can change the hearts and the minds of voters ahead of November. So I've come to fulfill my constitutional obligation to report in the State of the Union. And here's my, my, my report. Because the soul of this nation is strong, 
Because the backbone of this nation is strong. Because the people of this nation are strong. The state of the union is strong. President Biden will deliver his annual State of the Union address on Thursday. With the continued wars in Ukraine and Gaza, disarray in Congress and a tight race for the White House between the twice impeached, quadruple indicted, $500 million judgment, absolute immunity Donald Trump and incumbent President Joe Biden, is the State of the Union still strong? Joining me now is presidential historian and author of Presidents of War, the epic story from 1807 to modern times, Michael Beschloss. Michael, my friend, I usually don't get to spend this time with you on the weekend, so I am honored that I'm you are joining forward. us today. And congratulations on the newly timed show. Thank you. I very much appreciate that. Can you start us off with a little bit of history? Why do we have a State of the Union address? And I mean it specifically now. We have a 24-hour news cycle. So is sure. it still the reason to do this? Do those reasons still exist? Well, the basic reason is that to this day, it's a requirement of the Constitution, which says that a president of the United States shall from time to time report to Congress. And that was done in somewhat of a low-key way for much of American history. It was done in writing. But the big change, Katie, was 1966. Lyndon Johnson was president. And I won't do my bad Lyndon Johnson imitation, but he said, you know, why are we having a president do this at noontime when people are at work? Why don't we do it on primetime TV? That's when this began. And so the result is that since 1966, fluctuates, but this has been one of the biggest platforms a president of the United States can have, especially in an election year like now. Your thoughts about the fact that the GOP has selected Alabama Senator Katie Britt to be able to give the Republican response or retort to Biden's Thursday night State of the Union. Obviously, Alabama has been in the spotlight within the last few days, considering the decision from the Alabama Supreme Court on IVF. And Alabama is always kind of making the headlines for the worst reasons. Your thoughts about what you anticipate her role is going to be on Thursday? Well, you know, it's like uh, Abraham Lincoln used to say that his speech would be little noted or long remembered. I'm afraid that's true of most responses to State of the Union addresses. I mean, how many can you and I quote from? But this year, bad luck for the Republicans that they have set up Joe Biden to talk about IVF, to talk about Alabama, and basically mm -hmm. force her into a position where she's going to have to reply to that very majority view that IVF should be preserved. Michael, I also wanted to have you on, and timing is what it is, um, to talk about the fact that we're now looking at a United States Supreme Court that always has its lowest ratings in terms of trustworthiness from Americans, right. that they've now decided to give Donald Trump the, the grace of the space of taking up the time to address this idea that Donald Trump is king, that he has absolute immunity. I mean, considering the breadth of your knowledge about American presidencies, American presidents, what they've stood for, what they've fallen for, your thoughts about the fact that the Supreme Court would actually take up this decision and whether you could predict what you think this particular SCOTUS would do? Well, there's every sign that this is a way of buying time for Donald Trump by a, a Supreme Court majority or close to a majority that perhaps would like to see him elected. 
I wouldn't say that about almost any other Supreme Court in American history. It has now become extremely political, and we Americans are absolutely right in being very dubious and skeptical of the motives of the people who made this decision. Are we to believe that the Supreme Court is taking this on because they think it's a, an, an absolutely defensible notion that a president can, can hire, as was said in public not long ago, SEAL Team 6 to you know, assassinate his political opponents? I mean, if this were something that was very much in the balance, you'd want the Supreme Court to weigh in. But if a majority of Americans feel that this is a cheap political way of delaying perhaps two trials, federal trials that could damage Donald Trump in an election year, then the Supreme Court's, you know, reclam, which is already extremely low, is going to sink in a way that's really dangerous. Have we reached some measure of a historical inflection point then, Michael, when it comes to the blurring of the lines of the branches that are supposed to be separate, your executive branch being separate from your judiciary and one not controlling the other or being undued or unduly influenced or swayed by the other, the other idea of church and state being separate? Again, I reference that IVF decision where there was repeated references to the Bible in that particular decision. I mean, are we at a point where those lines of demarcation no longer exist? These these discussions are on the table in a way that certainly you and I have not seen during our lifetimes. And for most of American history, all those ideas were off the table. The idea that church and state should be separated, that Congress would be separated from the executive branch. Donald Trump has made it quite clear that if he gets to be president, if there's a Republican majority in Congress, he expects it to do what he tells them. That is totally un-American, as you well know, against James Madison and against the Constitution. And as for the Supreme Court justices that seem to be very eager to help Donald Trump to become president, they should remember that in dictatorships, if there is something like a Supreme Court, the Supreme Court almost quickly becomes irrelevant. That will happen to them this year if Donald Trump does get elected, does dominate Congress, and does go through with his plans to become a dictator. That's how serious this is. And we should listen when he speaks, because he's telling us what he's planning to do. He Michael certainly Bashloss. is. Thank you again for joining us today. Thank I really you so much, that. Katie. Great to see you as always. Thanks. And after the break, expat excellence. Chinese-born American filmmaker Lulu Wang joins me next on directing her new critically acclaimed Amazon Studios series, Expats, and how she's keeping up the momentum behind telling unheard AAPI stories on the screen. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can live out your MasterChef dreams. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.
Not a moment goes by where I'm not thinking about what I've done. People like me, do they ever move on? You're not betraying anyone by trying to live a better life. We all need to keep living. Even you. every parent's worst nightmare, the sudden disappearance of a child. The new critically acclaimed Amazon series Expats explores how that trauma reverberates in the relationships between three American women living abroad in Hong Kong. The show also examines the class dynamics of the wealthy expatriate community, where relationships are intense, deep, and fleeting. Joining me now is Lulu Wong, writer, director, and creator of Expats, now streaming on Prime Video. Lulu, thank you so much for joining us today. You know, the theme of adjusting to a foreign country, it's actually personal for you as your family moved from mainland China to the United States when you were just six years old. How much did you draw on that personal experience when you were adapting this novel? Yeah, thank you. I definitely drew on the fact that I was a foreigner coming to America, but I also drew on the fact that now when I travel back to Asia, I'm also a foreigner there. And so I think it's this, for me, my identity as um, a foreigner, no matter where I go, being both an immigrant in one place and an expat in another place um, that inspired this. You know, I read somewhere that you referred yourself sometimes as being a chameleon, this idea that you try to fit in in, in different kind of communities um, based upon where you find yourself. You know, I also refer to myself as a chameleon, and yet I have some regrets now that I'm older that I didn't more fully embrace being Korean when I was growing up because I was so intent on being integrated into American culture and American society. Do you still feel like you're an outsider when you are working in another country or living in another country, or even when you're here in the United States? Yeah, I think I have an awareness um, of uh, the space that I occupy, no matter where I am. And I do notice that I shift my personality. Uh, my partner, for example, came back to China with me for the first time in 2019. And he said, you're a totally different person. Like, you're still you, but you hearing you speak in this other language and navigating um, in this language and in this culture, you're very different. And it's something that maybe, you know, we don't see in ourselves. But as I get older, it's definitely something I want to embrace. And, you know, something about expats that I really loved is this idea that we see the wealth and the privilege of expats in Hong Kong. But you dedicated an entire episode and no spoilers, um, because I want everybody to go and watch this entire series. But there is one specific episode. It's the penultimate episode. And it focused on the helpers in Hong Kong, the maids, the babysitters, the cooks. I mean, these are actual expats themselves, right? They come from countries like the Philippines, Indonesia, Malaysia, and you showed what their life was like. The fact that they're so personally involved in these lives intimately of others, and yet in a lot of ways, they're almost fungibly re replaceable with others. Yeah, exactly. And it is a show about women in society. And I knew that I couldn't 
tell that story without, you know, when you walk out on the streets in Hong Kong on a Sunday, there's just hundreds and thousands of women um, on the streets. It's their day off and that sense of community and their sacrifices. So it was really important just to see the juxtaposition of their lives next to the expats. And what about actually taking the characters um, from the book that were white and actually making them minorities, AAPI, in the series, the expats that you did? Why that conscious decision to be able to do that from the book as translated to the screen? Well, you know, for me, it was just more interesting, right? Like, I felt like there was more story. Um, I don't like to attach a moral value to um, this idea of representation. I think that that feels inauthentic and it can feel like eat your vegetables. Um, but I actually just think this opens up a whole world of another culture, another identity, and other storylines that we can explore that's interesting. Well, Lulu Wong, this work has been spectacular. I'm incredibly proud um, as a fellow AAPI that you are doing this. And I'm also proud that you're getting the visibility that you deserve. So I invite everybody who's tuned in right now to please go and watch Expats. It's an amazing series, and I've been telling everybody about it. Completely obsessed. Can't wait to see what you do next. Lulu Wong, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And thanks to all of you for joining us today. You can catch me back here next Saturday at noon Eastern. Remember to follow us on social media using the handle at Katie Fang Show. You can also catch clips of the show on YouTube and listen to every episode of the Katie Fang Show as a podcast for free. Scan that QR code on your screen to follow now. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.